Everybody here? Yeah. So this talk is called When God Disappears. Since that's my experience right now. <laughs> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, we entrust ourselves to you again this afternoon. We ask that you would lead us and guide us along the way of faith, hope, and love. And we make this prayer, Jesus, all in your holy name. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This is a reading from the Gospel of John. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Thanks. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Or like God has disappeared from your life? Honestly, it's probably the most common human experience. When we turn on the news or when we look at our world, we can't help but wonder, where is God? Or why does he allow what he allows? And so the feeling of rejection, of being abandoned by God, is common. But is it true? Has God abandoned us? Can God abandon us? You know, there's a story um, that comes out of Auschwitz. And the story is that there was uh, a 12-year-old boy, Jewish boy, who stole a loaf of bread from the Nazis because he was starving. And the Nazis found him stealing this bread. And they wanted to make an example uh, of everyone in the camp. 
that nobody steals from the Nazis. And so they had everyone in the camp gather uh, in a circle. And they put this boy, they tied, a, they tied a rope to this tree. And they told everyone what this boy had done. And then they hung him in front of everyone. And in the midst of that, a woman cried out. She cried out, where is God? And somebody responded by saying, he's right there, pointing to the boy. It seems to me that there's either three possible solutions here. Either God is absent, he has disappeared, or God is, is present, or God is much different than we think. It's interesting, I think over the years, just talking with people about God, because everyone wants to talk to a priest about their ideas about God. I've, I've noticed over the years that there seems to be three popular ideas or three images of God, which is kind of like a, a popular theology of God. The first is that God is like a police officer. When I'm in trouble, I call him, and he comes and removes the problem. The next image of God is that God is almost like a banker. We put our money in the bank or we, put our, we do our good works and then we expect to cash in at a point in time on the interests that we have accumulated. And the third image is that God is, is kind of like a general contractor. So if I have a problem, I just call him and he fixes it. And a day later, everything is fine. Now, of course, there's a truth to that. God is all of those things. But the problem is that when this is all that God is to us, Meister Eckhart, in one of his sermons, he said, in order to find God, I must let go of God. And it's kind of a strange thing to say. And what does he mean by that? In order to find God, I must let go of God. What I think he's trying to tell us is that the God that we oftentimes speak of or believe in, or think about, is simply too small. You know, sometimes I feel bad for God because so much gets projected on Him. You know, we project our childhood wounds on God. 
We project our own bad decisions on God. We project what we think God should be like. You know, one time in the Priory, a couple years ago, apparently St. Bridget says there's going to be beer in heaven. Now, I've never read that, but this is what the friars were saying. And for like a week, we had this argument in the friary at dinner every night. Is there going to be beer in heaven? <laughs> when finally I was like, who cares? If she said it, great. But to me, it's, it's such a projection of maybe the best things of this world into heaven. I'm with St. Paul, who says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. No mind can imagine what God has prepared. I don't think we're going to need beer in heaven. No, I could be wrong. If it's there, I'll definitely have some. But what's interesting about all this is that God is so humble. He just sits there and takes it. You know, people come into church and they have no clue about the Blessed Sacrament. No clue. And God just sits there. So it is this God that is oftentimes the result of our projections that we have to let go of over time so that we can encounter the living God who is not our earthly father or not like our earthly mother, who is not the reason for our bad decisions or our misuse of our own freedom. but someone so much greater, so much more beautiful. There's one section of my life that I hope God has just forgotten about. And that was when I was a postulant. I hope he just deleted that six months. When I was a postulant, I would write letters to my friends. And, oh God, I hope I never have to read them. <laughs> they were so self-righteous. I remember in these letters, just telling all of my friends how important we were and what we were doing and how we were living. And that I, I basically thought that I was doing God a favor for giving up my life and, and entering this vocation. My image of God was that he was in need of me. And thankfully, because of the suffering that kind of attitude brings, that God, for the most part, has died. Because it was an illusion. God doesn't need you or me he desires you and me. And that is a big difference. When I think God needs me, who's at the center of that relationship? 
me. But when I realize that God desires me, it's him who is now at the center. And I'm consoled by the fact that we see this all over scripture. In Mark chapter 8, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and after three days rise. Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not on the side of God, but of men. You know what's funny about that gospel? And at least in Mark, it's right before that where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He should have just stopped right there. <laughs> but Peter has the right answer. So Jesus is the Christ. But he has the wrong understanding. He can't understand Jesus when he's talking about suffering, being rejected, and being killed. Peter has the right answer, but the wrong understanding. Or maybe too small of an understanding. And I think this is, this is oftentimes us. In the Gospel of Luke, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus takes a child and put it by his side and says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. There was a part of the disciples, at least in their heart, where they thought that following the Lord would bring them a certain amount of notoriety or fame. Once again, they have the right answer. Jesus is the way. But the wrong understanding of what that looks like. So that God must disappear. But is God really disappearing here? Well, of course not. What is disappearing is our false images and our false understanding of God are oftentimes childlike perceptions. In Christian spirituality, we hear very mysteriously this reality of, of the dark night. And obviously, St. John the Cross is probably the most prolific author about this reality. 
And in my opinion, I think it's one of the most important teachings for, for anyone who's taking God seriously or who wants to take God seriously. Because St. John says that not too, not too late after conversion or after we begin to take God more seriously, he says that God invites us to these two phases, the dark night of the senses, which is the most common, and the dark night of the spirit, which is less common. And the reason why he says the dark night of the spirit is less common is because people are so exhausted and frustrated by the dark night of the senses, they give up. And so what are these dark nights? They are this deep, deep purification that God initiates, that begins in our senses and goes down to the very depths of our soul. So that there is nothing that is untouched by God's purifying fire. And that can seem kind of mean. Why is God doing that? But I love the explanation that St. John gives. Because he says, in the beginning of our relationship with God, God is like a loving mother who consoles the child, who holds the child in its arms. And the child is safe from all danger. The child is at peace, content with life, well-consoled, well-fed. Life on one level couldn't be any better. And so, of course, this person is attracted to spiritual things, to prayer, to fasting, to spiritual reading, to going to talks and retreats. But then St. John says this. He says, the soul finds joy in lengthy periods of prayer. Penances are pleasures. Fasting is happiness. And the sacraments and spiritual conversations are consoling. Remember those days? <laughs> now that sounds, does sound like a problem. But this is what he says the problem is. He says their motivation in these spiritual works and exercises is the consolation and satisfaction that they experience in them. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with consolation, and we should never, ever reject consolation. But John is reminding us that in the beginning, our motives for spending time in prayer and fasting is not entirely pure. And that's okay, because this is why God is leading us deeper. Our motivation is not perfect.
And it's God's desire that over time, our motivation becomes pure. And so John says, as the child grows, so as you and I grow, the mother puts down the child, letting it walk on its own two feet, so that it can put aside the habits of childhood and grow accustomed to greater and more important things. So why does God do this to us? He does this to purge us and not to punish us. This is one of the greatest proofs of God's love. And I know that sounds so strange. God wants to purge us of our imperfections. He wants to purify our motivation. And he wants to help us mature and to grow up so that we can receive more of him. Another reason why I say that this is in my opinion, one of God's greatest acts of mercy. Because of this reality that no matter how much you and I do, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we fast, no matter how much we serve the poor, it is never enough to purify us to the degree that we are in need of to be in the beatific vision. For that to happen, God has to take over. So our prayer, our penances, our fasting is not enough to lead us to divine union. God, in a sense, must disappear. He must send us this darkness. But what's funny about even saying that is for St. John, darkness is not even the right word. Because what he's really, when he says darkness, he means overwhelming brightness. It's like walking out on a beautiful day like this and looking up at the sun. What's the first thing that happens? We like have to cover our eyes because the light is so bright and it becomes a sort of darkness. And this is what John says, this is what the dark night is like. It's really overwhelming brightness that blinds us. Because it is in this blindness or this overwhelming brightness or darkness where real faith, real hope, and real love are activated. St. John says it's these theological virtues that lead to union with God and nothing else. Nothing else.
To be able to believe when you feel nothing of God is profound faith. To love when everything within you is just dry and barren is a purified love. To hope in God when everything to the contrary seems different. This is the way to union with God. And so in a very real way, there is a sort of breakdown that needs to happen. Because we get to the end of our own strength. We reach the end of our own talents and gifts. And you know, obviously we, can, we see this in the lives of, of many, many saints. But I think in the life of, of Saint Therese, this is illustrated so profoundly. You know, Saint Therese enters the convent at 15 years old. She probably has one of the best childhoods possible in this planet. I mean, the love and affection that she had for her family is so beautiful. But when she enters the convent, very shortly afterwards, all the lights go out. She says that she can no longer think of heaven or meditate on the things of heaven, whereas before, just meditating on heaven or thinking about Jesus would bring her so much delight and so much consolation. And eventually, it gets so bad for her that she has to live by the rawness and the darkness of faith without any felt presence of God. She would oftentimes say that she had thoughts of suicide. She would be tempted by the thought that heaven didn't exist, that all this was a a nightmare, a bad dream. Of course, Therese never followed those thoughts, but the temptation was there. She said that she could relate to the atheists of her day who felt or who had no felt presence of God. But unlike the atheists, Therese chose to believe. Her holiness was so deep that most of the people she lived with had no clue. Because real holiness like this is completely almost invisible. It doesn't even register on our faculties. Because there's nothing left of Therese. It's all God. And as she's dying at the age of 24 from tuberculosis, her last words are, my God, I love you.
Did God disappear in her life? Has God disappeared in our lives? Of course the answer is no. It's impossible. You know the famous uh, poem, Footprints? I know it's kind of cliche, you kind of see it everywhere. But I think there's a, there's a profoundly beautiful message in that poem. There's two sets of footprints in this guy's life. And in the difficult moments, he only sees one. And so he asks God, where were you in the midst of this, this pain and this suffering? And in the poem, God says, it was in those difficult moments that I was carrying you. And that's why there's only one set of footprints. Yeah, I was in a prison once visiting this, this man. And his story was just so, I had no clue how to talk to this guy. And I shared with him this poem because his life was so dramatic. So many awful, awful things happened to him. And I shared with him this poem. And after I was finished, he said, I can understand that. He said, the only reason I'm still alive is because somebody else was carrying me. And so, yes, God was at Auschwitz when an innocent boy was killed. God was at 9-11. God is at all of our personal tragedies and sorrows in life in a way that we can't even fathom. Let's also not forget that God was not only present at Good Friday, But he's the victim, a willing victim, taking all of the sorrow, all of the pain, all of the injustice and the confusion of life, and taking it upon himself. To show us that God is never absent from life. And so, sisters, what needs to happen? I think we need to pause a bit in our judgments about what we think God is doing or not doing in our lives, in other people's lives, in the lives of your sisters, and in the world. Because there's always so much more we just can't see and understand. We need to let go of the God who we think we know perfectly. So that in faith 
in hope and in love. We can trust in the God who cannot disappear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.